All right, let me, uh, when we get into the word this morning, we ask everybody to be able to read something. So you're going to need to pull out your Bible, grab a phone, but you need to have the ability to read what I'm about to read because it's not in the notes, just since I had to share with us this as we get into this next little section here. So you guys know we are unpacking an understanding of discipleship. And I want to keep that word from ever feeling like it's too far from us. That sounds like some high church, those really serious Christians who show up, you know, during a weeknight for some program and they're reading through books and they're, they're doing some program thing. No, it's just the, the, the title Jesus put on everybody who followed him. You are a disciple. I am a disciple. So we've broken down the... New Testament discipleship into categories of, of there's an aim in discipleship. There are activities that fill our lives as disciple. And this last section we're going to move through in the next few weeks is there is an aroma of being a disciple. And, and this one's really, really important. They're all really important because if you don't have an aim, you know, you're just, you're living for the wrong thing. If you don't have the activities, you're never going to arrive at your aim. But this one creeps up on you because apparently you can, you can have an aim and you can do a lot of activity and you can stink while you're doing it. You can give off an aroma. A church can give off an aroma. That's a problem, right? And how, do, how do I know that? Well, it's true just throughout scripture, but in Revelation chapter two, you've got your Bible there and you just turn to this verse. It's not in your notes. There is this moment where the Spirit of God is going to visit seven churches that are described in the opening of the book of Revelation. Historically, that can be understood as these are, these are the churches down through the ages. And so here's the end of the New Testament, and now we press on into the New Testament years where the Bible's unfolding God's redemptive story, and there are churches here, and they're going to be characterized by certain things. And this first one really suits our discipleship description here. Chapter 2 opens with the lampstand of the church in Ephesus being inspected by the angel of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among the churches. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he walks among the church and he discovers their aim and lots of activity. And that's a good thing, right? So don't read this verse and saying, hey, they shouldn't have been doing anything. Of course, we're called to do things that bring to fruition God's purpose among us. And then he says this though, but verse four, I have this against you, and you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
See, there was supposed to be something in the setting of being a church that was, was more like a, a smell than it was just doing stuff. Right? How many of you guys know you, you have kids in your house, they can do stuff with a rotten attitude or with a really great attitude, right? And they might actually do exactly what you hoped they would do. But when they kick, throw something down, pout, and, and, and just have a really sour attitude... Do, do you look on that with, oh, that, that's, I'm so glad for what you did, right? The aroma of what you did was louder than what you did. You did the right thing, but you stunk while you did it. And here's a church in Ephesus that's doing right things. Man, they're standing up for stuff. They have put themselves on the line. They have confronted bad ideas. They just don't let anything ride among them and they're paying attention to the life that they're living etc etc but jesus is looking for a smell and he doesn't smell it among them you've abandoned the love you had at first and and, and that love i'm not going to unpack this passage because i really didn't intend to talk about this that love is a love exchange first with your creator that then permeates this setting. Can I, can I just tell all of us this, and I speak to my soul before I speak to yours. If, if I'm having a hard time loving this way, it's because I'm not connecting with love this way. Because being loved by God, I'll talk more about this next week, is such a humbling experience that it makes it really hard for me to be obnoxious this way. So if I become intolerant and critical and accusing and difficult and looking down on and competing with, etc., when I start to do this this way, it is almost a guarantee you have unplugged something this way. You have lost the influence of God's love on your own soul and you are a lemon-sucking individual right now. Because something of the sweetness, right? I mean, you bite into something sweet and you don't pucker up, right? You enjoy that. And that influence gets inside of you and it gets transferred to others. And this church was struggling with it. And God is looking for the center of discipleship to have a certain aroma about it. We're supposed to smell a certain way. So let's pray together and we'll jump into the notes. Father, it's helpful just for us to read in that passage that you walk among the churches. For us to think right now, this morning, according to your word, angels look on to this meeting, which is rather intimidating to think about. A host of heavenly beings are staring into this room. And you walk among us. And you look for your kingdom to come into this broken, wayward world and our broken, wayward lives. And so, Lord, we want to we be all here this morning because you are all here. And we want our hearts and our minds opened to your word. So, Holy Spirit, help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Dane Ortland says this in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says, to be a Christian is not simply to assent to a certain set of doctrines, but to smell a certain way. Right? We can start feeling like being a Christian means we believe in the inerrancy of the word of God, that it is God's word, it's infallible. We believe that there's one savior. The only way to get right with God is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We believe in eternal things. We believe that there's a real heaven and a real hell. You, know, you can believe all those stuff, and be an obnoxious human being, can't you? Just acknowledging that these things are true and there's some disconnect happening among us. I'm going to use the word aroma partly because it starts with A and all my other letters started with A. But aroma, because the Bible is going to use it here. And aroma, what is aroma? Aroma is a word describing the atmosphere of something that surrounds discipleship. It's something that's emanating from being a disciple. It's filling the room with, with a feel and a smell. It's, it's got a lot of intangible component to it. It's the mood of the room, right? And you can walk in and you know that, right? You can walk into a room where there's a group of people gathered and, and the room can feel a certain way, right? You've walked in the rooms where the feeling is tense, there's tension and you just feel like, oh, what did I just walk into, right? There must have been fireworks in here just a moment ago. Somebody's feeling really awkward. You, you weren't even present for that, but you feel it in the room, don't you? And then there's other moments you walk into and there's, there's great joy and there's lightness and there's celebration taking place, right? Aroma is that atmosphere, right? And so I'm very much talking about what's the atmosphere among Lakeview Christian Center? When you, when you walk in here, when you walk in our small groups, as Phil was talking about, when you walk in and out of gatherings and settings and people, what, what does it feel like to be here? Seriously, think about that for a moment. Some of the exchanges you've had with people, what, what do they feel like? When, when you leave from this place, what, what's the atmosphere that imparted something to you? Not, not just was it a good message that it referenced the right Bible passages. It talked about that doctrine and that doctrine. And, you know, a lot of churches don't talk about that doctrine. So we, I'm glad we did this morning. What was the feel while you were here? What did it smell like? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul unpacks this aroma word for us. Verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. To God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Let me just stop for a second here and always little tips on how to read your Bible. One, pay attention to what it's saying that's so obvious here. Because this would fly in the face of universalism and the idea that isn't everybody just a child of God? Right? When you read the Bible, there are a pronounced moment after moment after moment scripture that points to this group and that group. This group and that group. This group and that one. And that's in this passage right here, right? We are an aroma of Christ to God among those in this group who are being saved and among those in this group who are 
perishing. And that's a, that's a vital thing to understand because every one of us is in one of those groups. You are either here this morning or watching on live stream and you are perishing or you are saved. There isn't any other category, only those two. And if you right now, we're trying to figure out, well, which one am I in? If, if you're trying to figure that out, uh, please, hey, I'm here during the week. You can come visit. You can come see me after service. There is nothing more important about your life than that. Which of those two groups are you in? Because you are in one of them. And you very much have a decision to make about moving from one to the other. So Paul describes these two groups. He says, we're a fragrance of Christ to God, but we are among people as we are giving off the smell of fragrance. He says, to one, we're a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. <laughs> Who is sufficient for these things? I love when Paul installs that thought, right? Whoa, we just got in way over our heads. Lord, I would prefer that you not put that kind of reality associated with me. I would rather not have anything about me have so much weight in people's lives. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So if you follow along, that, that last line right there is, is Paul unpacking an issue that he's going to address over and over and over and over again in 2 Corinthians. Paul had an interesting relationship with the Corinthian church. He plants this church, but there is a contingency within the church that turns on Paul. And they are constantly combative toward him. And they are undermining him and they are questioning him. They're not sure he's a real apostle. You know, he's not very impressive. I mean, the guy can sting you with a letter, but he shows up here and he's not that impressive when he speaks. He's not like some of the others. And, he, and the, the church was highlighting and competing and comparing ministries. Paul spends 2 Corinthians defending himself. Defending his ministry. And one of his defenses is, let me just tell you, there's some people among you. They're peddlers of God's word. This thing hasn't penetrated them. It's not an aroma coming out of them. They're just hawking some things on the outside. And Paul highlights himself and says, this has transformed me from the inside out. What I'm saying to you comes from in here. Right? God has commissioned something in me. So that's kind of what he's defending. But he's setting up a concept that there's this smell. There's this created effect of the life of God that is genuinely in a person. There's going to be an outside demonstration. Jesus said something just like this. He says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Now, you want to figure out what that tree really is? What's growing on it? If you got all kinds of confusing, ungodly, never interested in God, doesn't have a heart towards God, if that's what's growing on your tree, then that might be telling you what group you're in. It might be just demonstrating to you that your tree by its nature is producing the fruit that you see in your life. So if you don't see the fruit that's characteristic of a godly disciple, it may be because you're not a godly disciple. 
Because to be one is to give off an aroma, is to have an effect upon our lives. Ray Ortland says this very interestingly in his book, The Gospel, which is really more about the gospel community than it is particularly about the gospel. He says, the ministry of the gospel in our churches involves more than doctrinal argumentation. The work of the gospel is subtle, like the work of a fragrance. It's, it's not just brute facts landing hard on someone's mind, but an aroma wafting into a heart. That's a great image. And this light contact proves to be life or death. Such is the astonishing power of the gospel of God. Wafting into hearts. Something mysterious about that, right? But, you know, really, aroma is a mysterious thing, isn't it? I mean, you get these little spray things. You can just kind of spray something on the other side of the room, and eventually it just kind of fills the room. Some people wear really bad cologne. We won't point you out this morning. But it's like when, when you have been in a building, your presence remains for days. I don't know how that happens. It's like you didn't, like, rub all over the carpet, did you? It's like, but the smell, you are still here. I haven't seen you in a long time, but you are still here. Uh, well, there's something about this mysterious wafting of this aroma that just begins to permeate and fill the atmosphere of disciples. So there's a few things in this passage here I want to pay attention to. I'm just going to deal with one today. There, there is a triumphal procession in this passage there is a spreading fragrance, and we'll unpack that in the days to come. And there is this aroma of Christ to God that we don't want to lose as well. But I'm just going to hang out in the, the triumphal procession today because it makes all this possible. And I put a little note in your outline there, in your outline that you may now write your own notes in if you have the cool little app this morning. Uh, discipleship is lived... Listen, in a particularly informed moment. All right, there's a plot line of activity taking place. And our discipleship shows up somewhere in that plot line of the story. And therefore, it, it gets informed by the moment in which we live. All right, so here's, here's some moments, right? If you're, if you're into James Bond movies or like Mission Impossible type movies. All right, here, here's the simple plot line of that typical movie. Uh, a, a brief setup, right? The movie opens with some world scale event that's going to really go bad because somebody has developed some secret weapon that's a toxin that if you could just get it into the air or inject it into people's bloodstream, it's going to kill and wipe out everyone. And now we have to figure out how to keep that from happening. So that brief introduction then gets followed by several moments of tension that occupy most of the movie. Right? It's, it's one tense moment after another of, will the remedy work? 
Who could possibly fix this? How do you address this? How do we overcome all the forces that are working against us? There's evil and there's good and there's bad guys and there's somebody trying to get us to this point where this will fix it. Ah, but will we ever really get there? And then the the movie slows up when it gets right up on top, this massive crescendo right before they actually fix everything. And it's usually a a chase scene that's really long and a lot of stuff blowing up. And and they're going to shoot each other and have a fist fight all within a few minutes. And then somehow, whatever this terrible toxin that's going to kill all of humanity, there's the antidote and that's going to get injected at just the right moment. And then suddenly we, the tension is relieved, right? And then resolve your favorite character that you thought was not going to make it. He's, he's on the verge of dying, but he makes it right. And then you get to be on the other side of the resolve now. And we love that moment. It just, it just feels good. But the, the movie's only got like three minutes left now, right? It's like they're going to smile and they're going to all kind of high five. And then they're going to go on to the next chapter in Mission Impossible or whatever their storyline is. All right. Well, quite honestly, they, they stole that from the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, that's exactly what you get. You get a brief introduction, right? We don't spend a lot of time. Genesis 1 through 3 is massive, isn't it? It's the origin. It's the creation. And we get introduced to the bad villain character. And the whole world gets thrown into this toxic mess because this villainous terrorist named Satan has developed a toxin. And he injected it into Adam and Eve. And it's time release. And it's going to kill the whole human race. And so here we go. And then the tension starts, and there's one battle after another. Maybe, maybe Abraham, maybe a promise is made to Abraham, so maybe there's a solution here. Abraham has the antidote, but Abraham is going to die with no relatives. And so it's going to die with him. So the rest of humanity is going to die. And then God steps in, and, and there's a remedy, and, and we have a lineage now. And he turns into a, a nation, and the nation of Israel, through them, is going to come the antidote and save the whole world. Oh, but, but they're going to get captured by this evil villain, Pharaoh, and they're going to spend time in Egypt and hundreds of years are going to go by and they're going to get wiped out. They're slaves and they're going to get wiped out so we could lose hope again. But no, God comes in and he rescues them. He brings them to Sinai. He gives them the promised land. But then when they get in the promised land, guess what they do? They go sideways, right? They get tempted by all the idols in Canaan and they become idol worshipers. They're going to misplace God's purpose. There's going to be no solution for this thing. And we keep moving along through time. There's an exile story, a chapter. Tension, tension, tension. You're going to solve this thing. And then a baby is born in Bethlehem. But the baby's going to get killed, right? I mean, this is, this is an awesome Mission Impossible story. Jesus is going to get killed in Bethlehem. He's never going to make it to be the, the solution presenter. But he gets out of Bethlehem and he gets all the way to Golgotha. And it's like the ultimate chase scene battle of all time. Slow down, slow motion. Finally, the great villain terrorist is going to kill our last hope. And he does. And the whole movie slows up. And even his disciples are walking down the street kicking rocks after that event. And Jesus has a conversation, remember, on the road to Emmaus? We, we had hoped, right? They've lost hope. But then there's this crescendo moment where on the third day, he rises from the dead. He took 
the toxic poison into himself. It looked like it killed him. But he rose and overcame it. He is now the antidote. So the story now can continue because there is an antidote now. And so now we reach this moment of resolve, right? The tension that's been there for years and years and years, it's been resolved by the Son of God who is the antidote to that which would kill every human being. That's where discipleship gets done. You and I live in that moment of the storyline. We don't live in the moment before it happened where I wonder if, I wonder if, will the Messiah come? Can he pull this off? Is this going to happen? Can God really rescue us from this? That's the tension, the tension, the tension. We live on the other side. We know the resolve. Jesus came back from the dead. The toxin took its best shot and Jesus is the remedy. And that's where we do our discipleship. And so Paul illustrates this to the Corinthians by, by telling them, you know, it's like the triumphal parade that you've seen when Rome goes off to war. And for years, soldiers every day are in this tension. You're wondering whether your son, your husband is dead or not. He's off fighting a battle for Rome. And there are Difficult battles where lots of people died and there's tensions and there's concerns and there's heroes on the other side and there's pushbacks and you may not win and maybe this isn't going to go good. And then one day, there is this triumphant parade that shows up in the capital. And the, the soldiers come home and, and the lead horse is the general who led them in to battle. He is returned victorious. Behind him are the, the generals and the leaders and the commanders that were with him that were victorious. Behind them, a bunch of captives, a bunch of great renowned warriors from the other side who are now walking in shame as defeated foes. And then there's all kinds of gold and there's booty and there's this giant parade taking place, right? N.T. Wright describes it this way. Most people in Paul's world would know about the triumphal processions. When a king, a general, or some other leader had won a notable military victory, the whole city would turn out to welcome him and his troops as they came home in jubilation. They would bring with them the prisoners they had taken. They would display the booty they had plundered, and they would do everything to make it clear to their own people that they had indeed been victorious. All kinds of ceremonies and rituals were devised to make the point. And among them was the practice of the burning of incense. This celebrated the arrival of the triumphant general. It spoke to the people in the crowds and in neighboring streets. Like throughout the city, they would have an impact here. Of what was happening, whether they could see it or not. It reminded the victors of their victory. And the rewards that awaited them. And it reminded the conquered prisoners of their defeat and the fate that lay in store for them. Prisoners were usually killed, perhaps, by being forced to fight with wild animals in the amphitheater. Alternatively, they may be sold into slavery. This is the moment that Paul is picking up on. Right? If you've ever seen a movie, like I mean, there's an image of scene in the movie Gladiator where... Commodus returns to Rome and there's this massive gathering of a crowd as he drives down the street there in his, in his great day of victory and triumph. This is the setting that Paul says, you are doing discipleship 
in that day, in the day of Jesus Christ's triumphant procession, and there is this smell wafting through the air, and you are an aroma of this Christ and his victory. But I, I don't want to unpack all about aroma this, this week. I just I want to focus on the triumphant victory. Because without that, you and I never, ever have had a hope of smelling any different than we ever have. The forces that are in this world allied against any human being being able to smell like Christ would have killed any favorable odor that ever came from us. We never had a hope that we could smell like Jesus Christ. Unless he comes and triumphs over these forces and parades his way back to the Father and ascends to him and distributes gifts to everyone and the aroma of his victory fills the land. But in Paul's description, you understand, you know, there are always these little incense burners, like the little censers that were all throughout the streets that fill the place. You, you and I are the burning incense. We're, we're the smell that comes off of us is the life of Christ. Paul used this same image in a number of places, right? Colossians chapter two, the same word in the Greek is unpacked there. He says, and you who were, listen, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you, you were dead. You, you were not expressing God's life. That's what that means because you know, you're speaking to people who have a heartbeat. So technically, they're, they're alive in the sense that they can hear what you're talking about. And there's blood flowing in their veins. But Paul still says, no, no, you, you, you had a pulse, but you were still dead. Well, what do you mean I was dead? You were apart from the life of God. God's life is living. You were apart from that. That's the description. And he says, and you were uncircumcised. In your flesh, the circumcision was being dedicated to the purpose of God. So you were apart from the life of God and you were not about God's purpose in your life. Paul says, that's your condition. How many of you guys know that smells a certain way? When you are apart from the life of God, your, your life is going to give off some kind of an odor. There's, there's going to be a fragrance, if you will, that comes from you in that condition as well. If you are not dedicated and, and directed into God's purpose, that's what circumcision here means, directed into God's purpose to be God's people for God's glory. If that's not your aim, then you're aiming at something else and you're going to smell a certain way. There will be an aroma that comes off of our lives. He says, that was your condition, but God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen to this. This is his parade image. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That word triumphing, it's only used twice in the New Testament. Once here and once in 2 Corinthians that we just read. It is an acclaimed procession. It was actually related to a song that was sung to honor Bacchus. So some of us know a little bit about Bacchus living in New Orleans, right? 
So there is this image that Paul says he put to open shame. These forces that were working against you when he in triumph ascended over them. And he has been successful over them. Hey, listen to what's in this verse. Because these are issues, whether you and I have thought these through or not, the Bible presents them to us. Here's what you and I need to overcome somehow in our life. There's death in this passage. Eternal separation from God. That's the Bible's explanation for death. That there would be a life that God intended to dwell in us. He breathed life into Adam. He intended for his life to be connected to our life. But death means God's life is not connected to ours. But we still exist, which means we exist on earth apart from God and we will exist in eternity apart from him as well. How does that get fixed? There's forgiveness in this passage. There's forgiveness because the Bible recognizes there's offense that creatures who were made to fulfill God's purpose, when they sort of tell God, hey God, not interested in your purpose, I've discovered some of my own. And I want to live for that. I don't even like some of your ideas, by the way. I find them offensive. So I'm going to go do my own thing. Or maybe some of us who are much nicer than that. Hey God, kind of like a lot of your ideas. There's a few I'm not going to probably get around to in my lifetime, but you know, they're probably good for somebody. Okay, all that creates an offense between us and God that needs to be forgiven. How does that happen? How does forgiveness take place? There's, there's in this passage a record of debt. The passage says there's a record of debt, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt. Did you ever stop and think somebody is keeping a record? everything you have ever done, every thought you have ever had. I mean, Jesus went farther than, hey, did you ever, did you actually commit adultery? No, but I've got on record here how many times you lusted after another person so that in your heart you actually did commit adultery, right? So God expands this into your thoughts, into the motivations of your heart. So you want to just, you want to get sobered for just a moment? There's a record somewhere of Every last one of those. What do you do with that? How do I fix that? And then there's, behind that, there stood against us legal demands. Did you you know there's like a heavenly law that is perfect? That existence answers to that? All right, so it's kind of like, you know, you and I get that. There are certain things that we could do to break the law, and, and you just can't ignore that. You know, the law has been broken. Law needs to be enforced. Well, in God's kingdom, righteousness demands something. There are legal demands. You are making a massive mistake if you develop an idea about some higher power out there who's got this ability to ignore righteousness whenever he gets in a good mood. So like you could just kind of present something, you could polish your life up, you could bribe him somehow. He, he'll treat you better because he's in a good mood today. Righteousness is righteousness. It demands rightness and it never stops demanding rightness, ever. It's gonna take somebody who could triumph over that. Can, can I triumph over that? Can you? Can you pull it together enough to where you could silence the demands of rightness? That you could fix the things that need to be forgiven? 
in your life. You can fix them. Hey, I did some stuff. It was in the past. Well, you know, how problematic is it's been in the recent past too. How do I fix that? And then there's another foe that gets mentioned in here. He puts them to open shame. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame. The rulers and authorities? Who are we talking about there? Well, other places, Paul describes demonic beings, spiritual entities, that when Jesus assembles his parade for his victorious triumph, he makes the demons stand in line and be shamed that he has overthrown them and been victorious over evil spiritual powers. I know, all right, this is modern America. I, I probably just need to ask you, do you even believe in that stuff? Does it sound like a Harry Potter novel? Is that the only place where spells and curses exist? You know, hey, kind of, yeah, if we're talking Harry Potter, yeah, I believe in that. Right? What are, what are spells and curses, right? They're, they're this invisible effect of the spiritual world pushing on the natural world. That's what they're doing. And, you know, Jesus described that, right? The one who created everything, he described it. He says the way of the spirit is like wind. It blows. You don't know where it's come from or where it's going, but you know it's blowing, don't you? How many of you guys remember Hurricane Ida? Did you actually see Hurricane Ida? Well, technically, no. You just saw the effect of Hurricane Ida. All that wind is invisible until it rips your house apart. <laughs> then it becomes very, very visible and throws things all over the place. And Jesus says, welcome to the spiritual world. There are forces in this world in the same way that none of us have been able to invent a way to make hurricanes just have an off switch and triumph over them they beat us to death whenever they feel like it spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places what paul describes they do exactly the same thing so our question for each of us is how do you overcome these things what are you and i going to do to change what he describes here in Colossians chapter 2. Well, here's, here's God's answer. Verse 15. He, he did this. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Jesus Christ, there is this victory. There's this triumph. There's this moment that comes to us where he did something that solved everything I just described. And he's the only one who has the ability to do that something. And this imagery is throughout scripture, right? We've already looked in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We're, we're in the parade of victory. Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's, that's processional imagery here. That's the king returning with booty behind him, throwing stuff into the crowd like a parade. Here, have this, have that, have this. And he's leading captives into his victory. Listen, this is the mission Jesus was on. But I want to draw our attention to what was given to us by the victory and triumph of Jesus Christ. All right, well, maybe you haven't connected some of these verses but when he ascended on high, this is the triumphal procession, right? When he ascended on high, he gave something to human beings. Someone in particular, if you will, he gave the life of the vine. The illustration we've been using, he gave the life of the vine to human beings. 
The Bible calls us being grafted in. Grafted in is where you know you cut a slit into the vine and you insert a foreign branch into that vine and close it back up. And they, they kind of meld together. And now the life of the vine gets transferred into the branch. And we are grafted into the vine. When Jesus ascended on high, he gave us the life of the vine. Listen, this is how he described it. John 20, verse 17. Jesus spoke to Mary after he had resurrected, right? So he's gone to the cross. He's fought the battle. He's emerged resurrected, but he hasn't yet ascended. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Well, why is that significant? Because that ascension is a massive part of the program. Earlier in John 14, the last night, slow motion night, right before his crucifixion, he tells his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. What's that got to do with me doing greater works? Later he says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. This is a whole new day. This is Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, and I'm about to transfer my life into you. And it's going to make all the difference in the world. You're going to be a branch with a new life emanating from inside of you. And where is that going to come from? When I lead my triumphant parade and shame those spiritual beings behind me. And I take captives before the Father. When I ascend, that's what I'm going to do. This is where you get the day of Pentecost from. This is when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in every believer. So I think I wrote this in your outline. This triumph of Jesus set in motion... The infusion of the life of the vine into us as branches so that there might be fragrant blooms that are now smellable coming from our lives. If you guys have some fruit trees growing in your backyard, uh, you've got an orange tree and a couple others, you know, orange blossoms. When, they, when all those blossoms come out, you have a branch and there's, it's an orange tree and the life of that tree is being transferred into the branch. And at some point, that life is going to bear fruit. That's what it does. And little blossoms are going to emerge and they're going to fill your backyard with wonderful aroma, right? And then eventually those blossoms are going to turn into fruit. And this is all the same illustration that, that the scriptures keep picking up that there is something going to happen when the life of the vine actually starts flowing into branches. You've heard of the Holy Spirit. He's been with you. He's over there, but I'm going to plug you into him and he is going to flow in your life. And when he does, you're going to start smelling a certain way because his life is going to produce blooms in you. And then there's going to be fruit as well. Right, we get this classic picture here, Galatians chapter 5. It's our last verse to look at. Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul explains this process when he says, But I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh 
They're against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Right? If you are in the group that's attached to Jesus Christ, then you are not under the law with its demands that just every day simply remind you that you fall short. You fall short. You fall short. You're going to need somebody to rescue you from this because you fall short. If you pick the law up, that's what it will say to you. If you listen to it carefully like a seashell, that's what it's saying to you. You failed again. You can't do that. Oh, you did it for a little bit, but you did it for the wrong reasons, so it actually doesn't count. I mean, that's what it's going to say to you. And so it's going to point you to something besides itself. So if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works, can I say the, the smell? The smell of the flesh is evident. What's the flesh smell like? It smells like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Have you ever noticed you can, you can walk into a room, walk into a setting, watch a movie, and, it, and it's charged with sexuality and sensuality. There's a flirt game going on. I mean, some of you guys have to work in offices and settings where this is the game that's taking place. There is this corruption of sexuality. It's a corruption of sexuality that wants to express itself to anybody and everybody that's moving. And it wants to draw attention to itself. And it wants to gain access to some. This is in the air, right? You can feel it. You, I mean, you guys have probably had some creepy exchanges with people where that's what creeped you out. So it wasn't exactly what that person said. It's just that, ah, man, it felt really kind of icky. What was it? You were, I don't know. Were you smelling something? Well, sort of. That's what this aroma is like. He says, idolatry, idolatry, Idolatry simply is the smell of other things displacing God. That's what idolatry smells like. When you walk into a setting where the the feature elements, the things that most important for me, the things that I come to life about, the things that I sacrifice and make sure I do, make sure I do, make sure I do, when everything but Jesus fills that place, it's, it smells like idolatry. That's what idolatry smells like. A displaced God in our lives. That's idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. All the tensions that come into relationships with one another. All the other reasons that are occupying us as to why we can't get along with one another, as to why some relationships smell like this, right? Some relationships smell like jealousy. Some relationships smell like fits of anger. You walk in and you can you can feel the mood in the relationship. It's angry. What is that? It's the smell of flesh. It's the smell of not God's life, but fleshly broken human life. He's got drunkenness, orgies, things like these. 
Just the incessant giving in to pleasure at some crazy rate and doing such crazy things just because the next pleasure and the next pleasure and the next pleasure. And listen, that, that smell could be pornography. That smell could be gaming. That smell could be anything where pleasure rules me. Whatever that pleasure is, I'm doing that next and I can't get myself to stop. That smells a certain way. So you have this aroma, this smell being given off. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but, the aroma of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You smell it? Faithfulness, self-control. Do you smell that when you come in here? Do I, do I smell that way to others? This is the, the aroma of the life of God in me. The vine pushes its sap up through the branches and it just like it rubs off on us. And next thing you know, there's this little blossom, but it's not just a blossom. It smells a certain way and it releases that into the air. Next thing, your whole backyard smells like honeysuckle. And you walk out, and I don't know anybody who walks out and goes, oh, that's awful. Honeysuckle, please. Listen, I live near a refinery. I know what stink is like. Uh, there's lots of burning flesh in my neighborhood. Honeysuckle is awesome, right? I mean, it's like, oh, you smell that? I mean, if I go for a walk and honeysuckle's in bloom in my neighborhood, I come back and tell my wife. Because <laughs> I know she's going for a walk. I say, hey, in the next block, did you smell that? Oh, my gosh. Spiritual things are that way. There's something about getting around the aroma of the life of God as it, as it rubs up against you and me as human beings where these blossoms, these incense on fire, smell comes off of us. This is exactly what God was interested in in our lives. He wants us to smell a certain way. Dane Orland again says, to be a Christian is not simply to assent to a certain set of doctrines, but to smell a certain way. Let me, let me just tell you what we're not. I don't know how this happened, but if you're humble and honest, this might be your definition of what it means to be a Christian. You recognize that in this world, there's fallen humanity and at some point you meet a savior and you get saved and your life is written in the Lamb's book of life and your future is set. You're going to be in heaven with him and your sins are all forgiven. And then we go to live this life. And you know what it can start feeling like? We're the people that are in this world with a really cool book. With a lot of great ideas in it. As a matter of fact, even better than that with actual words from God, accurately recorded, inerrant, powerful wisdom to live our lives. So, so we're people with a really cool book. And we're going to do our best to live by this book. And so thanks for coming today. I hope you learned something from the book. And you can put that on in your life. And you can do your best this week. Do your best this week to get this book going more in your life. There's a piece of truth in what I just said. We do have a really cool book. 
Because in this fallen world, God knew that we needed something sure that would not move and change and get twisted by human beings. So he gave us an inerrant word. But when Jesus was going away and ascending to the Father, he didn't say, don't cling to me. I haven't yet sent you the book. Did he? Don't cling to me yet. I haven't yet ascended to my Father. And when I ride into heaven in triumph, I'm going to give gifts to men and I'm going to give the Holy Spirit to you. And he, he is going to lead you into the truth. He is going to manifest his life through you. And when his life rubs up against your life, there's going to be this fragrance that comes off of your life and you will be a fragrant aroma of Christ into this world. Listen, that's what, that's what God had in mind. And I want, to, I want to draw this to our attention in a particular way. I'm very grateful for Ray Ortland's book on the gospel. I'm going to stick an asterisk on something that he says here. He says, the ministry of the gospel in our churches involves more than doctrinal argumentation. Yeah. The work of the gospel is subtle, like the work of a fragrance. When I read the New Testament, I find a couple of places that say something that sounds like that. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. In a few places, the gospel gets personified like it's doing something. Because the gospel is a collection of inspired thoughts from the word. It, it explains God to us. It explains human need. It explains what God did to meet human need by the one and only person, Jesus Christ. It explains salvation to us and forgiveness to us. All this is the gospel. The gospel gets to the end of its explanation by the ascended Christ sending the Holy Spirit. That's part of the gospel, but I would say this this way, and I would say this on purpose because it's one thing to develop a relationship with the gospel. It's another thing to develop a relationship with the living Holy Spirit who is in you. You can read lots and lots and lots of books and be able to write papers and and explain the gospel. But the Holy Spirit is a living person. He is in you. His life is traveling through you. It's rubbing up against you. It's doing something in you right now that you may not even be perceiving and may be overlooking. The work of the Spirit is subtle like the work of a fragrance. Can I just tell you, when you open the New Testament, I challenge you to do this. He's the main character once you get past the ascension. His work, his presence, his transferring of Christ into our lives, his awakening in us, the work of the Spirit, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. This morning, let's pray about a, a few things together. We'll pray for our youth in just a moment. We'll pray for this week, what's going on at youth camp. I want to pray in light of what we've just learned. I want to pray for some of us as well. So just go with me here for a second. There was this triumphant parade where Jesus Christ led the forces of darkness and wickedness and sin itself as defeated foes in a parade behind him. 
And then he gave the Holy Spirit to us to transfer that victory into our lives. But I know the reality is there are some of us here this morning that the smell of death, the smell of the flesh is very noticeable, very noticeable. And let me just, on the one hand, say this. Galatians 5 never gets written if that condition never exists in the church. It does exist in the church. You could be here this morning, and what you need to hear from Paul is, there's a triumph that Christ accomplished that addresses that issue in your life. And that triumph is the most important thing about what you're facing. He did something to unbolt you from that thing and to transfer his life into you. You don't have to stay there. That doesn't need to reign over you anymore. Why? Because there's a triumphant procession and you and I are led into that. That's why Paul can say, listen, all of us used to stink to high heaven because that stinking devil injected sin into us and it was going to kill us over time. A slow, ugly, stinky death. But a Savior came and he triumphed over that thing. And after one threatening moment and threatening moment that it wouldn't come true, the Messiah wouldn't make it, he's going to be killed. He got to the point where, no, 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 he is the antidote. We live in that moment, Paul says, let me inject this into you. You will never be the same. And the only fly in the ointment here is, I'm not in heaven yet. So sin and Satan are still in the neighborhood. Even though he's defeated, I'm still bumping into him. But there's a reason why Paul turns around and says this, because he wants you to know as you go to do life, you do it on the other side of what Jesus did. He did this. You live in the resolve. It's not that it might happen one day. It has happened. He is victorious over these things, so I can be different. And why does Paul highlight this fight? Because being different is going to be a fight. So if you're thinking, well, why isn't just this just automatic? Well, because the Bible says it's not automatic. That's why. Is that a good enough explanation? It's a war. But you fight that war totally different. Not with the idea of, oh, man, let's all fight, guys, because maybe, maybe we can overcome these things. Oh, no, no, no. We fight because we got placed inside of the one who did overcome these things. He is 100% triumphant over them. Now let that life flow into your branches and let it produce a smell that comes off of your life that changes the stink that I have brought with me into the kingdom of God. Let's stand up together. We want to be those who Paul described in that passage like him. We want to be sincere before our God.
We don't want to be some church peddling your word and out of touch with the fact that actually we're, we're hawking the word of God, but we're arrogant, we're critical. Secretly, there's the stench of some sin that's not been confessed or done away with or moved on from. So Lord, we're, we're a church full of words. We can sit in small groups. We can sit around tables. Because we know what the script is supposed to be. It's supposed to say some things and sound a certain way and never talk about this or that. But God, in this room this morning, all of us, all of us are in touch with the fact that sometimes the smell coming off of my life, I can't even stand it. So I know the people around me are smelling it too. According to your word, some are perishing. Some are on their way to salvation. And I am an aroma of something. I am smelling like something to them. Lord, you know where your spirit wants to take our struggles and our thoughts right now. Lord, you know whether there is in this room unconfessed private sin that the only knowledge of that is between an individual and their device. Lord, you know whether the aroma of our hearts is some form of arrogance or pride. That the way we think about ourselves, we're impressed. We see ourselves as superior to someone else. Lord, you know whether the impact of this world our past, our flesh has drained us of joy, peace, replaced it with anger, control, fear. Or that smells a certain way. So Lord, we've heard some incredible news today. Lord, we're standing here with an awareness of something besides the Holy Spirit is being smelled from our lives. But Paul made an announcement. Lord, we want to take you up on this reality. There's a victorious procession. There's a triumph that we get to be part of. No matter what pressure the enemy brings, no matter what sin is operating in our lives, Lord, there is a triumph today that we are part of that triumph. Jesus Christ has done something for us. He, he has removed us from being owned by the toxins of this world. And he has injected his life into us. So Father, I pray this morning, Lord, would you, would you stir up in us as we spend some time in the next few weeks looking at the aroma of Christ in a church setting, 
God, would you stir up fresh faith in our hearts? Some of us just need to hear this morning, I don't need to continue to do what I'm doing. I don't have to do that. That thing doesn't have the right to control me forever. I believe in the triumph of Christ. I believe in the freedom that he purchased for me. God, I believe that this morning. Tell God you believe that. You're going to need to tell God you believe that. You're going to need to walk in faith. You're going to need to go to war. And your victory is guaranteed not because of you and your effort, but because of Christ and his triumph. God, I pray for us this morning. Lord, I want to pray for our young people, for our youth. God, I want to pray for this event this week that you tuck away in the summertime for our kids to get away, to have some concentrated moments filled with friendship and filled with fun, but Lord, filled with an opportunity to encounter the living God in your presence. Lord, if what we have read today is true and what you saw in the Ephesian church was true, Lord, there, there's something of your spirit that just wafts in the air into our hearts. Lord, we pray for great messages and we pray for the word to be clear and to be communicated. We pray for understanding of your word to be given this week. But Lord, we pray for the wafting of the Holy Spirit, the fragrance of your presence among us to touch young people and to awaken things in them that no words, no mere activity from human beings could ever do. Lord, you finding the broken places, the hidden places, the hurt places, and you speak into those categories. And Holy Spirit, you come and you bring healing in the broken places. You bring hope into despairing places. You awaken reasons inside our young people that they just didn't have until they encountered the Spirit that way. And you set them on a trajectory, a calling, that they begin to walk in your purposes in greater and greater power. Lord, we need that from the coming generation. God, we need called individuals. We need awakened individuals that, that smell different. And their aroma fills the room when they walk in. So God, we pray that you would set this meeting apart this week. You would invade it. Lord, you would awaken the inside-out ministry of your Spirit in every young person as they are there. God, bring them back into this setting. Bring them back into our midst, Lord, as, as an aroma of Christ to us. Let it have an impact on our souls. So, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for this word. Lord, thank you for the hope that we as a church, you walk among us and you would notice you smell like Christ. For your glory, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Hey, if you're here this morning and you need somebody to pray with you, especially maybe an area that you're just really struggling with to find some freedom, to come find a moment with a prayer team member and just ask for God to step into that thing with you and we'd be glad to pray with you further.